Well, it is good to be here this morning, and I did not, believe it or not, ask to be here this morning. Um, Pastor Fontaine, thank you for allowing me to come. I, I speak a lot when I'm in the United States, not so much when I'm in a foreign country. I love missions, and I do love the Lord, and I think we all have a story to tell. And I, um, when Pastor Fontaine asked me to speak, I said, yeah, you know, what, is there a theme going on, or, you know, where, where are you heading? Is there something that you want? And he mentioned to me, he goes, could you speak about cycle breaking? And I, and Pastor Fontaine knows some about my life. He's going to learn a lot more about it today. I don't know if Allison, did you tell him a lot about my life or something? It was just the Lord, you know, and I've had a lot of folks that have come to me, and uh, especially my good friend, Phil Newburn. He's been praying for me. I appreciate that, Phil. And uh, he has no clue what I'm going to share. Uh, when Pastor Fontaine asked me, it's, um, I'm not, I've never really heard the audible voice of the Lord. Um, the closest that's been is my wife, because um, she's the one that tells me what to do, minus him. Amen. But I, 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 as soon as Pastor Fontaine told me, just all these things just came to me. And uh, I'm going to share some stuff with you from a very personal perspective. If anybody here knows me, they know that I'm like a pretty open book for the most part, but there's places in my life where I don't want to go to. It's a lot of bad memories. And, but those are things that I believe that God used in my life to give me where I'm at today, to allow me to do what we do right now with SDC Guatemala. We've been in um, Guatemala now for 10 years, and um, we work in Pats, outside of Patsoon and outside of Tecpan. We work in really um, more Casarillos than Aldeas. Um, we spent five years in Mexico as missionaries there and planted a church. And we plan out, we're like Fontaine, uh, we plan to spend the rest of our days here in Guatemala. Matter of fact, we were ready to leave uh, Guatemala. We were looking, we were going to go to Texas, and we had this opportunity, and it was all going to be funsies and all this stuff. And stinking Fontaine, we come here to church, and he was talking about when he went through the same thing, like I was looking for an exit plan, and I realized that I have no exit ramp from what God has us doing here. Um, so we're super, we love you guys, we love the Guatemalan people, and um, it's just a joy to be here. If you are here, and you're expecting Fontaine, I apologize. I remember a few years ago, um, we heard the, the assistant pastor uh, to the late, great Charles Stanley, and he said he would fill in for Dr. Stanley a lot when he traveled, and he said buses would come in from all over the U.S. to hear Charles Stanley, and he said every time he stood up, and here comes a big tour bus full of people in, and the look on their face when he stood up to preach instead of Dr. Charles Stanley was something to behold, he said. So I apologize in advance, um, but again, it is to me uh, to be here to speak about this cycle um, is something I think touches each and every one of us. Um, before we get started, I want to read the word, and we're going to be in Matthew today, Matthew 21. Um, I'm all digital now, um, but Matthew 21, verses 42 through 45. We're going to go ahead and start directly in God's word. It says this in verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, 
as we continue here this morning in your word and as I kind of share a little bit about me, God, I don't want this to be about me. I am definitely a nobody. Uh, I don't have anything to offer. I don't feel really. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be standing here. Don't deserve to be a missionary. Don't deserve my family. Don't deserve all your goodness and your mercies and just all the grace you pour upon me each and every day. So God, I, I do pray that I would just say, I want to be well-spoken and I've tried to prepare God, but I want to share what it is you want me to say because somebody in here needs something from you. They don't need anything from Bob. They don't need anything from Fontaine. They don't need anything from their neighbor. They need something from you today. And so ultimately, God, my prayer this morning is, is that that would come to fruition. Whatever it is that the people need here today, Lord, that they would get it. In your name we pray. Amen. And I feel like I had to have a picture because everybody has a picture. So we're going to start with that picture. Look at that fly stud right there. Who laughed? Let's enjoy. This is me. I'm old school, right? You know the seatbelts. Parents would be freaking out right now. And uh, I'm close enough to Kentucky and West Virginia, just like you. We just rolled. That's how we rolled. This is probably around 1979. I'm 46 years old. Um, 1979. And this is my mom. There you go, Danny. Thank you. Um, This is my mom sitting in the driver's seat of this car. And to begin the story, before I get into to years um, of my life, I, my mom, I talked to my mom today, she lives back home. Um, my dad passed away from cancer about 10 or 11 years ago when we were in Mexico as missionaries. But I probably have, I don't know, maybe, I don't even know Tess, um, Tess, Tess is my wife. I, I don't even know Tess, I don't think that I have any paper pictures of me and my mom. I, I don't think that I do. I might somewhere, I don't know. One of my brothers or sisters sent me this here not too long ago. And so now if I, they send them to me, I just have to like save them, you know, into my cloud or whatever. Um, but from that, the best I know, I was kind of happy, I guess, at that time. A lot of people don't have a lot of memories from when they were younger. And some of you all can remember back traumatic things. Maybe when you were a kid, this happened or that happened. And for some reason, I think it's a lot of the stressful things I went through in my life, starting from like a little, little boy. I remember, I have memories back to that, to like three years old and and forward. I can remember some crazy, crazy, crazy things that you're going to find out. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this story and hopefully be able to relate with you a little bit today about breaking cycles. By the way, before I get started, I haven't arrived anywhere. None of us are, are going to arrive anywhere until we see him, amen, one day. Because the Bible says when we see him, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. And someday we will all be there. But I'm not there yet, but I'm trying, and I'm trying to break it. And I'm going to start out with 1977. Danny just had that year. And 1977 is when I was born. The world would never be the same after April 19th, 1977. I was born to two young parents, uh, my mom and my dad, and as you're going to learn here as I move forward, they weren't completely ready, I don't think, to be parents at that time, like a lot of us as mom and dads. In 1981, 1981, as I said, some people don't have young memories, and I I wish there's a lot of memories that I didn't have. Um, By the way, if you're anything like me, I've got a lot of memories that I kind of suppressed, and they came to me as my life progressed. 
but I have a lot of really, really young memories. In 1981, I would have been four years old, and uh, that little boy saw that lady sitting in that car leave him home alone by himself with his sister, with his dad's best friend, sneaking out the back door. I'm like four years old. I remember I'm standing in the bathroom, begging, I'm begging mom not to go. Mom said, you're going to be fine. But she had to sneak out the basement for some reason. And I remember, mom, why do you have to sneak? Why, why are you going, just don't worry about it, son. And I remember I jumped, I ran to the bathroom and I was like totally inquisitive, like from the drop when I was little. And I remember looking out the window and seeing my dad's best friend's car parked behind our house. And I saw my mom running through the backyard, getting in that car and taking off. And of course, I'm, I knew it wasn't right, and I'm trying to process all these things. And I go, and my sister were home alone. It's dark. My dad was working shutdowns. He worked at DuPont. And we hid under the tables for, it seemed like, hours. Because we were afraid someone was going to come and get us. We were little kids, and nobody was at home. And I remember dad came home, and he took us to the mall. So it was around November, I think, late October, early November. And he took us to the mall to see Santa Claus because I think he was just trying to make us seem like, okay, everything's okay, life's normal, let's go see Santa. But that was 1981. 1982, so just a year later, the little Bobby's sitting there in that car now, he's five years old, and I wake up to a house with no lights on, no gas heat, and an indoor temperature of probably 28 degrees. We lived in West Virginia, and when it gets cold in the winter, it gets pretty cold. I mean, we're not way up north, but we're high enough north, about 28 degrees. My one older sister and my three younger siblings, aged four, three, and two years old, were all there. We didn't know what to do. We're in an empty house, no electric, no heat, no, what, what, the Christmas tree's still there, you know. Um, we don't know what to do. So, we had a little, you guys remember those little space heaters, that, the, the convection ones that just heat up? Um, I found half a loaf of bread, and I took that bread and held it up against the front of that thing. And the only reason I knew to do it, because I used to think it was fun before that time, and I figured out that I could toast a piece of bread and thought it was really cool. But at that point, I was doing it to survival. I was trying to feed my brothers and sisters. And from there, we left the house, and I remember it was snowing. And I could only imagine what the neighbors thought. We went across the road to the neighbors and told the neighbors. Then we go to 1983. My mom is just gone. No answers, no explanation. She's just out of my life. My dad took us, I remember him telling this story. He took us through the begging of some family members. You got to realize my dad is 28 years old now with five kids and a wife who just left him for his best friend. And we go to child protection services. And I remember my dad telling a story. He said, um, he, goes, I, he goes, I know they did this on purpose looking back. He goes, he separated all five of us kids into different rooms. And he goes, we were watching cartoons, collaring and doing these different things. And he goes, so the lady just sat there and said, okay, uh, so you have Bobby and Krista and Daryl and all my, my siblings. And he was, they, she would start asking questions. Um, for instance, we'll talk about me. He's like, what's Bobby's favorite thing to do? What's his favorite cartoon? And he was having to recall all the things his kids loved. And he's like, I, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. He took us up and he raised us up until his death. Um, Dad kept us all by himself. 1984, mom has two weeks visitation in 1984. When my mom took off, um, I love my mom, I have a relationship with my mom, but this is just facts. Uh, when, when, when mom left, she didn't really come a whole lot for visitation. 
Um, it took me a while to figure out why I didn't understand all those things. But one day she showed up and she showed up with the guy that I saw her leave the house with that night back in 1980 or 81. And she's going to pick us up for the weekend. And I remember I took a, <laughs> this is so funny, and this, you're going to laugh about this because I had a situation this week and had to tell some neighbors that I was redneck and all this stuff. And, and I told those of you that were there for this, that event this past week, the other day, that this is why. I had a butter knife, and I remember <laughs> I'm on the back porch trying to sharpen that butter knife on concrete because I'm like, I'm going to kill him, man. I remember telling my best friend, I'm like, this guy ruined my life. Like, I don't have no mom. I don't, I, 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 my, my family's a mess. I'm going to kill this guy. And I wouldn't go with my mom. I remember every time I would get ready to go and get in that car, I would look back and I would see my dad. And my dad never said bad things about my mom, by the way. What we didn't have that, to my knowledge, he never, as I got older, he may have had a few choice words. But when I was younger, he didn't really say anything. And I remember I just looked at my dad sitting in the doorway and I was just sad. And I was like, I can't leave dad. And because I knew what my mom had done to me. And I would go home and I would just hug my dad. And I would just be the one. I would stay there with him. I would skip visitation. I did that the whole time. And then we go to 1985. 1985, little Bobby Yater is introduced to alcohol for the first time. Now, I had alcoholics in my family. I knew what it was. I'm talking about in the neighborhood. I grew up in like... In the 80s was the greatest neighborhood. I had a home plate that was built into my backyard, legit, and everybody would come over and we'd play wiffle ball, tennis ball. And back in them days, everybody's parents went to work and you just did whatever you wanted to. And I remember my friends would get into their dad's old Moose Lodge whiskey. I'm talking 12, 13-year-old kids. I'm eight running around with the older kids. I clearly shouldn't have been doing that right. No supervision. And that's how I spent most of my summers. I think I tried it one time. It wasn't like I got involved in that, but I was introduced to it and I was around it pretty hardcore at a very young age. Then we go to 1990. 1990. My alcoholic uncle, who I loved, is laying in the floor on a cold winter night in front of my door in my kitchen and he can't breathe. He's bloated. His face is blue. It looks like his body's turning green. You can tell he can't breathe at all. So we end up calling the paramedics and everybody freaks out. And this was an uncle that he never had children. And my middle name, his name was Wayne and my middle name's Wayne. And I love my uncle Wayne. He's the one that taught me to hunt. And I remember when he would get really drunk, he would tell me how he wishes that I was his son and he never had a son. And, you know, I'm trying to 10, 11 years old, trying to process these types of things. And they take my uncle Wayne out. He had alcohol poisoning and he survived it at this time. Um, But he would tell me, that he remembered when he was 12 years old that he watched his little brother, which would be my uncle, Daryl, who I never got to meet. He got hit by a car crossing to go to the bus stop and died and got killed right in front of him. And he always thought it was his fault. And he said, I started drinking when I was 12 years old. This uncle told me that when I was 12 years old. And at that, I learned at a young age that, man, people have a lot of demons and are carrying a lot of things. It's a lot to process as a little boy. But I learned this in 1990. In 1991, I got tired of the physical abuse. My dad loved me, but my dad was a type of individual who, if he just felt like dropping you, he would just flat out drop you. It's just the way it was. Like, I, I tell people, I, I, I kind of told Tess some of the things we're going to share. She goes, does this make you sad? I'm like, not really. It's my story. I've accepted it. I don't, it doesn't really do anything for me. Uh, I think God, I'm trying to use it now to help other people. But I remember I walked up to my dad and I said, dad, um, I played sports and whatnot. I'm like, hey, I need like five bucks because we got a, a, an away game and 
for some reason, he's like, decides to like backhand me at 6 a.m. and bloody my nose. And I was like, all I wanted was five bucks. You know what I mean? That was the type of thing that I dealt with. And I knew my dad loved me, but he just had this anger thing. So I said, I can't, I'm 90, you know, I'm getting, I'm like, right. And those of you who know me, know how big of a smart aleck I am, and I'm very sarcastic, and it started back then, so I did deserve some of the things, but I couldn't take it no more, so I go to live with my mom, who I never went and visited, remember, because I said that um, I, I, I wanted to be close to my dad, and I, I was very sad for him, but I knew my mom would take me in, and so I went, and I lived with my mom for a little while. Um, that same year, my older sister um, got sent to a girl's home because she um, was halfway into becoming an alcoholic and in a lot of trouble. Had another sister um, who was dealing with uh, a sexual assault court case from a close family friend. And all those things are just kind of normalized in my life. I, th- I thought everybody, I've get, I was talking to one of our interns here, and I think it was you, and you were talking about trauma. I was talking about trauma, and you said, yeah, maybe when dad threw me up and I thought he might drop me, you know, I thought this type of trauma was like everybody, it was like normal, right? And that's how our family dealt with it. 1992, 1992, 1992, my purity, and you know what I mean by purity, is gone by 1992. I'm no longer fighting abuse, and I'm back home with my dad. But now my focus in life is sports. I I loved baseball, football, wrestling, all those things. But football was, as they say, my jam. I loved playing tackle football. And that's all that I did at that point in time. I'm now, at this point in my life, 1992, I'm living in about my 10th home. And I'm in my fifth or sixth school of my life by that time in 1992. 1994, this will date me. 1994, I'm a junior in high school. That is the year that I really met Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and things start to shift in 1994. After years of dysfunctional life, coupled with attending a legalistic church, which doesn't go well with a dysfunctional family, by the way, I feel God calling me to make radical change and proclaim his name. This meant me leaving a friend group behind all my sports buddies, all my partying buddies, and I decided to go to a Christian school for my final year of high school. I just felt like God wanted me to do that. Giving up football to me, I mean, I'm going into my senior year, and I was like, I was stoked. I was fired up. I mean, that was like a hard thing for me to do. I mean, I felt like, you know, I was, you know, Hudson Taylor or something, you know, like, I'm giving this up. Now it doesn't look like a big deal, but it was to me back then. But my life would be changed forever because I go to the Christian school. It's like 30 kids in the very first day, I meet my wife. She swears that I had high waters on when I walked in the door. We didn't have dress pants. I met Tessa right off the, right off the bat. She's my wife today. But 1995, it didn't last long. I'm kicked out of that school. <laughs> and I'm not going to get into a myriad of reasons why I was kicked out of that school. But I'm dismissed for misconduct. And I go into life with a diploma and I never had a high school graduation or anything like that. I just went, I mean, I'm out of the house and I'm living. 1996. 1996 would be another big year for me. Tessa and I aren't quite married at that time, but we're expecting a baby. So obviously, we had a child out of wedlock. And we're, we're fixing to have the baby, which is my daughter now, who's going to be a missionary in Morocco. God's good, right? And so I, we were fixing to have this baby, and I'm thinking... I remember Tessa called me. She, she, she swears to this day like I was, I think I was rude. 
But I was literally at the point where I was like hung over and she calls me. She goes, I think I'm pregnant. And I was like, I'll talk to you tomorrow. (laughs) Click. (laughs) And I went to bed for like 24 hours. But I realized that my child, not knowing who my child was going to be, anything my life held, I always knew that God's purpose was for, to have a complete family unit. I always knew, I, I don't know what it's like to have a mom at home and be raised in that environment at all, but I always knew that's what God intended. And I thought, Bob, you know what, man, you're going to have to get your act together and you're not going to be that way and you're going to take care of your family. And so I, I, I tried to do the best I could. It wasn't pretty. I'd get a job at that time back in those days, you know, making $3 an hour, whatever it was. I just wanted more for my children. But later in that year, in November of 96, that same uncle who almost died in my house, we're now um, in another house, and I wake up to people just freaking out on a cold, cold, cold November morning, frost everywhere, I'll never forget it. And my uncle's lying on his back, out back, dying from congestive heart failure because he had quit drinking for 10 days and his body just it was just going into this crazy stuff. He couldn't handle it. And those of you that are in, in the medical field know how this can affect people. And I dropped down and I remember my knees are freezing to the deck and I started giving him CPR and I can't get hardly any air through his passageway. And he dies right there in front of me. 1996. And here's, here's my Uncle Wayne, and he's gone, and Tessa's inside, and she's probably thinking, what in the world's going on? I, I, I'm totally West Virginia. I mean, we were in a mobile home and everything, right? And that is where we were at in 1996. So Tessa's expecting, with the help of some alcohol, marijuana, I was able to kind of just numb it and move on from that point in my life. We go to the very next year, 1997, 19 years old. We get married. Tessa and I get married at 19 years old. Newborn child, 375 an hour. But all in all, we were doing pretty good. We were, I remember one day, something I remember about that year, 97, we came back to our hometown and I wasn't in church and I'm standing outside. I never, I mean, it's like yesterday. It's so funny. I'm standing underneath the deck smoking a cigarette. I know it's like hard for to imagine. I remember the first time I told my daughter, Alyssa, I smoked cigarettes. She started crying and like told her teacher that, you know, my dad smoked because I was like her superhero, right? But I'm just smoking a cigarette, like chilling. And here comes Tessa holding, you know, he hold that little, little baby in her carrier and she's walking Alyssa past me. And I'm like, where are you, where are you going? You know? And she's like, I'm going to church. You know, we need to go to church and I need to have Alyssa in church. And my wife's dad's a pastor. I was like, whatever, you go. And so she goes, and of course, the whole time she's there, I'm just massively convicted, like, oh, man, what a deadbeat you are, and you're going to let your wife take your daughter. To, you know, it was almost like a slap in the face to me, and God was like, you big dummy, you know, what are you doing? So we go to the year 2000. I get back into church. We're at the year 2000. I'm fighting at this point the call of God. I knew I had a call on my life when I was in that 17, 18 range there, as I told you, whenever I accepted Christ in 1994. But I still had more family issues going on, and and not necessarily with my wife and I, but there was more sexual assault things happening in my family, accusations between family members, and they're at another church, and the pastor sweeping under the rug, and not calling authorities. And I mean, again, we're talking about cycles, 
And if you haven't seen the theme yet, you can see I'm in a pretty vicious cycle. Sexual abuse, substance abuse, mental abuse, spiritual abuse by leadership. I mean, every type of abuse you can think of, I'm going through all these things. But at the same time, thank God, he's still working on my heart. He's like, God, I still have something for you, Bob. I still have something for you. You know, I thought I had kind of sinned my way out of a lot of things, but it wasn't like that. You know, God's like, no, I still have a call for your life. And in 2003, we still have family issues and more still there, but something radical happens. We have this, I know his name. His name was Dewey Williams, this old school evangelist from Bristol. Yeah, he preached in two churches in Bristol, Tennessee and Bristol, Virginia. If you know, you probably know, right? They're side by side right there. And he comes in and he's preaching and just hammer down, man, on the word of God. And God, it just smacked me in the face like I can't run. So I go to Bible college. Long story short, I kept my job. I had an HVAC business. I go to Bible college for a few years and get done with all my Bible college. And God calls me to be a missionary, which I said, God, I'll never be a missionary. My wife, I had no idea my wife was called and praying for me to be a missionary the whole time, like she sabotaged my life, right? And then so God calls me. So now we are up to 2005 to today. Tons of arrows I have taken for her, my other daughter, my son, for my wife, trying to protect them from this vicious cycle in my life. I have a family like a lot of you guys have that would, who's, who's heard the term when it comes to family that blood is thicker than water? Blood, oh, blood's thicker than water, man. And I'm like, I learned really quickly, no, it is not thicker than water. It is, but it's the blood of Jesus Christ that's thicker than water. And my closest family are, are, are you guys. Pastor Fontaine is closer to me than 99.9% of my family. And we don't talk that much. So that tells you where I'm at, brother. Blood is thicker than water, and it is, and it's been uh, just putting my life into what God has called me to do. Guys, I am not any different than you all. I know you all may not have the same story. I'm, just, I'm sure there's somebody in here that has even worse, and I didn't get into everything, but you have worse stories than that, and you can say, yeah, but this happened, and this happened, and maybe it's a little not as bad of a cycle that you've been in or that you find yourself in today, but you're still in one. And folks, we are all, I love saying this saying, we're all made out of the same cookie dough. Every single one of us. I was broken. All the dysfunction, the issues, the sins of my fathers, the sins of me, it fell on me and it broke me. And that cycle literally just broke who I was, the repetitious behaviors of myself and those around me. Tell me your story and you'll tell me your cycle. You tell me your story, and I, that's one thing that God is kind of, I'm able to, and I, I know some people in here the same way, and I've talked to Mr. JB about this. You know, some, of, some people kind of have the gift, you can just like size people up really quick, and I've kind of been that way in my life, and I can kind of look, and, but if you tell me your story, I'm going to be like, yeah, you've had a cycle of this. You've probably had a cycle of this in your life. I had that vicious dysfunction, as I told you, between the sexual, mental, verbal, and spiritual abuse all of them have broken me, and you have been broken, broken by cycles of sin and dysfunction. Guys, everyone has a cycle. Every single one of us has a cycle. It could be your past, a family thing like me growing up like that. It could be one that you've created yourself. 
Maybe it's a good cycle, maybe it's half and half, but every single one of us have one. But to be fully effective for Christ, we have to overcome. We must break that cycle. And I have great news for each and every one of you. And you already know this. We don't have to stay in that cycle. We do not have to stay in that cycle. Your family doesn't have to deal with the sins of your fathers because you just can't get past them. Or I'm just like this just because. If I would have told you all those things about me, you'd never been able to look at me and be like, eh, that guy come from a messed up family, right? I remember I remember went to a juvenile detention center once and we were sharing a gospel and I told the kids, I said, where, where do you think I'm from? They're like, oh, you're a pastor's son. And I'm like, no, no, you know, I told them a little bit of my story. I'm like, no, I'm not. You can break that cycle. And the thought came to me, coming to a crossroads in a cycle and, and, and you all and my testimony, who are the people that break the cycle? Who breaks the cycle? And obviously I know that it's like human beings in general that breaks the cycle, but only the cycle broken break the cycle. I'm gonna say that again. Only the cycle broken break the cycle. Those of us that have been crushed, those of us that have been crushed, we are the ones that break the cycle. By the way, nobody else can break that cycle for you. You have to make the conscientious decision that you are going to break the cycle. Pastor Fontaine cannot, he can help you. He can pray for you. Mom and dad can help you. They can pray for you. They can be there for you. You can have positive thinking. We can go see a therapist. And by the way, I'm not against any of the things I just said, but those things alone are not going to break your cycle. Praying harder isn't going to help you break the cycle that in and of itself. I just need to pray harder. I need to pray harder. I need to go to church more often. I need to claim something. That's not always going to break the cycle. <clears throat> the only way to break the cycle is you have to be broken again. You're broken by the cycle, but you've got to be broken again. Danny, put it if you, up there, if you would, Matthew 21, 44 again. We're going to read this. And whosoever shall fall on this stone, I grew up with the KJV. I love how this, I love the words of this in the King James Version, by the way. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This was a message that that old evangelist from Bristol, Virginia was preaching that night in 2000 when God got a hold, or 2003, when God got a hold of my heart and like, Bob, you need to do this. You need to get back in. You need to pursue the ministry like I called you to. He preached this and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Whosoever shall fall in this stone shall be broken, but on whosoever shall fall that will grind him to powder. We have to fall back into him. Allow Jesus Christ to break you, realizing that he is all that I need. I mean, he is the one that's going to free me from the bondage of my sins. He's the one that's gonna help me be able to do this or do that or have the relationship with my wife that I need to have or to quit this vice or whatever the sin in is your life. You have to fall on him. If not, but on whomsoever shall fall, it will grind you to powder. And it's not the hand of a heavy-handed God, like, and you're a fly on the table, and he's waiting to just hit you, and he's just waiting to smack you. No, it is not that at all. Look, if you would, in Matthew 21, 42. Got that, Danny, 21, 42? There we go. 
It says, did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head. I love the word of God and I love the simplicity of things. Things aren't difficult in life, are they? They're really not. We've rejected the head of the corner. We do it all the time. And what happens, it doesn't matter if you reject him, if you allow him to fall on you, just when I see, when I think about God falling on me and grinding me to powder, I'm not thinking about judgment. I'm just thinking about like the weight of his glory and all the, the, the goodness that he has for you and all he wants for you. And if, unless you fall and allow yourself to be broken on him, it's going to flip the other way and you're just going to be crushed by it all. And you're never going to overcome. You're never going to be able to get to the place that he wants you to be. We must be broken. Verse 44 said it. We have it up here still. Could you go to verse 44, Danny? Please. The last slide here. And whosoever. And whosoever. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. Anybody that falls on him, you're going to be broken. But you're going to be broken in a good way. They're not going to be like Humpty Dumpty. You're going to be broken away. I, I, I told Tessa this. And I, I, I don't write, let alone read books. I'm not like a big reader. Maybe audiobooks I like to do. I like hunting magazines and things like that. But now with the internet, you know. But I told her, you know, maybe one day I'm going to write a book and just kind of tell my story just for something fun to do. And I said, you know what? If I wrote a book, I would title it this. A broken vessel holds more water. Think about that for a second. A broken vessel holds more water. When you're broken by him, and you're broken by him, and then you're in turn allowing him to change you, mend you, and live for him, and you're broken, and your cup's overflowing, and if even if it comes out the cracks, and people get to see those cracks, it helps them heal, because they see what God has done in your life, and you can do this. You have to allow yourself to be broken. Don't be crushed by that weight of glory. Be broken by him as unfailing love. By his grace, I'm breaking the cycle, not only for me, but for the generations that come behind me. And is that not worth it for you all? I, I, and, and, and I, you know, we, we're in a lot of churches and I see a lot of saints, you know, the senior saints ministry, great, and, 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 and I love it. But I'm in tons of churches, and I know you are too, Pastor Fontaine, many of you that travel and speak. And it's like there, we're here and we're in church and we're just doing it for us. And we want the music this way, and we want this, and we need to go have lunch at 12 and blah, 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 blah. And we're not thinking about the generation behind us. We're not thinking about what type of Jesus, what type of life of service are we leaving behind for those behind me? How many arrows have you taken for your family? Men, moms, grandma, grandpa. I know a lot of your stories that I'm friends with. I know you have taken some. Have you exposed them? Have you not protected them like you should be protecting them? I want you today to say, you know what, God, now I'm gonna fall on you. My, my life's in shambles. I, I, I've had a lot of things. I've made a lot of mistakes, committed a lot of sins. But I'm going to allow myself to be broken by you. And in this, I'm telling you, in this, you can break that cycle, whatever it is in your life. I want to encourage you to do that today. As they come to play, I don't know, again, where you're at. I know where some of y'all are from. I know some of y'all stories. And I'm not here to, to, to do some type of old school. I want to call everybody up here to repentance. I just want this morning to tell you that you love or serve a God, excuse me, who loves you and he cares for you. 
His word tells us that. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Take his yoke. It doesn't make sense, right? Taking a yoke. If you know what a yoke is and you're, you think about oxen and, they're, and they've got these yokes and they're just plowing the fields. But he says, take my yoke. It's easy. It's light. I want to encourage you to take that today. I'm going to pray before these guys play. And I just want God to do whatever he wants to do in your life, guys. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for today. I thank you for the ability to be broken, that we don't have to be stuck in a cycle, that our story's not done, but at the same time, you can use our story. And that, God, I thank you for using my story. And I'm not always perfect with usage in it, Lord, but I thank you for it. I thank you that I, I, I came through it. And by your grace and by your mercy, I stand here today to proclaim your name and to share your goodness with everybody here. Many of which know it this morning. They know your goodness. And maybe they're stuck in it. Maybe it's not like the type of cycle I was in, but maybe it's just one where you could just be very stubborn and you don't want to do what it is that God wants you to do. Lord, I don't know what it is, Lord. I pray you'd have your way with your people. In your name we pray, amen.